the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lenten Gospels narrate a progression in the conquest of evil. On the first Sunday in Lent, Jesus is revealed in his wilderness temptation as the one who has the power to conquer the devil. On the second Sunday in Lent, Jesus demonstrated his power to free us from evil by freeing the daughter of a Canaanite woman from demonic harassment. Today's gospel reminds us that exorcism is only half of our change. The departure of evil creates a spiritual vacuum that will be replaced by something. Next week's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000, points to Jesus as the bread of life. The vacuum created by the departing evil must be filled by him. This process is the essence of our baptism. In baptism, we renounce the world the flesh, and the devil. We professed our faith in Jesus. We were given the gift of the Holy Spirit to fill the spiritual vacuum. However, baptism merely initiates us into this pattern of change. If we not continue to say no to evil and yes to Jesus, new forms of sin and evil can take root and begin to grow. This is a particular danger for religious people. It happens when we focus on the outward forms and doctrines of our faith, but neglect what is happening in our interior lives, in our hearts. The practice of religion can become a cover for various sins. And the gospel highlights this point. The people who accused Jesus of performing the exorcism by the power of the devil were the most religious people in Israel. They are a warning for us. The illustration of the unclean spirit that returned with seven more wicked spirits is a commentary on Israel's history. Israel's initial exorcism took place in the Exodus. When God led Israel out of Egypt, he exercised the evil from his people and made a covenant to live among them. God's presence and God's covenant pointed to the eventual coming of the Messiah. Israel's yes to the Messiah would fulfill her destiny and vocation. Yet, here was Messiah present to save Israel, and Israel's leaders were rejecting him in favor of their self-made religion. This would lead to judgment. Thus, the last state of rejecting Jesus was worse than the first state of slavery in Egypt. This highlights the religious danger of Lent and the danger of religion in general. We can make lists of things we will do or give up for Lent. But if they're not connected to the baptismal pattern of saying no to evil and yes to Jesus, they will become a man-made religion about which we will feel good or bad depending upon our outward performance. 
the presence of Jesus is disruptive. Jesus challenged the religious leaders to repent, but they were unwilling to change. Their religion guarded the status quo, highlighted the sins of others, and made them blind to their own sins. Jesus calls us to repent also. If we will hear his voice and harden not our hearts, as Psalm 95 says, the Holy Spirit will convict us of our unloving and slothful habits. He will uncover our unworthy motives. If we are unwilling to hear his voice and change, we will try to mute his voice and push away his presence by practicing a merely external religion instead. We avoid this danger through a practice of prayer in which we listen as well as talk. This is why some practice of stillness and silence in prayer is essential. The constant noise of our world drowns out the voice of God. The busyness of our world enables us to run away from our pain and disorder. Our unresolved wounds and sins lead to bitterness, resentment, anger, and guilt. Being still and silent with Christ brings us into an encounter with both Christ and also our own internal world. This will not always be comfortable, which is why many people find stillness and silence hard to enter into for extended periods of time. It's much easier to do some religious thing. And there's another issue that creeps in here. Facing our internal wounds and sins and the emotions associated with them can produce an unhealthy form of shame. This results from formal, formative experiences that internalize a message that we can call anti-grace. This message says, it's not okay to be you. It's not okay to feel how you feel. It's not okay to want what you want. It's not okay to be sad or angry about the things that make you mad or the things you lost. Thus, when we sit with Christ and these natural and authentic emotions surface, there's a tendency for some people to push them away and run away from them on account of shame and anti-grace. In a sermon about the conquest of evil, we should be clear about just whose voice this is. To be changed by Jesus requires a new experience of grace to replace the experience of anti-grace. Real grace is a paradoxical experience of embrace and conviction, and it must be experienced in that order. In Christ, God first embraces us exactly as we are, with all of our sin, interior messiness, and mixed motives. As Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
This is what we experience when we come to the altar of God. Jesus receives us and embraces us exactly as we are, even if we are trying to avoid ourselves. However, grace does not stop with the embrace. That would be mere sentimentality. As Christ embraces us and we see God as he is in all his beauty and love, we begin to see ourselves as we really are. This awareness of sin and disorder that comes to us while we are firmly rooted in God's love is the foundation for growth and change in the life of prayer. For some people, the exercise of honest self-examination leads to self-condemnation. Being unable to look at themselves, people get defensive, blame others, and guard themselves from the shame that comes from the internalized message of anti-grace. Real change requires the ability to be self-critical without being self-condemning. This is why we must experience the embrace of God in Christ first before we experience the conviction of sin. In the embrace of God's love, we are free to face ourselves without condemnation. We are free to grow and change. And this experience of grace is fostered by a community that practices this same pattern in its common life, in which we embrace each other as we really are without condemnation, to give each other freedom and space to grow. As a biblical example of this, consider the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She was brought to Jesus in public. Her sin was exposed. She could not hide from herself. But what did Jesus say to her in her condition of nakedness? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and do better. This is embrace followed by conviction. I've often wondered where the man was. You don't commit adultery all by yourself. We could say he got away with it, but did he? Perhaps he spent the rest of his life hiding from God in shame with no experience of grace and no change. The woman who was fully exposed also experienced real grace. This is a model for what happens when we bring our real interior selves to Jesus. This is authentic religion and is the antidote for a religion of merely doing things. The epistle today exhorts us to walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Walking in love means living in a loving relationship with Jesus, with embrace and conviction as the new pattern for true religion. <clears throat> a good Lenten fast will lead us 
into a greater experience of this authentic love. As we detach from things, as we practice stillness and silence in our prayer, our anxiety, our unsettled emotionality will come to the surface. We must learn to bring these things with us into our prayer. As Isaiah 54, 4 says, do not fear, for you will not be put to shame. And as our epistle says, all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.